the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. This is the Passover show because we're doing it in the middle of Passover. Uh, by the time the middle of the week is through, well, Passover will have passed over. In this half hour of the show, we'll be talking with Michael Klein about the concept of nigun. This is a song without melody, soul-felt songs. These are not liturgical things that are just sung at gatherings or when a person is by themselves. Second half of the shower show, there is a portion this week at the end of the week. Uh, Passover is over on Thursday, so it becomes a portion of the week on Friday, and that would be Shmini, which is chapter nine of the book, uh, chapter eight of the book of Leviticus. But we're going to talk about the splitting of the sea, which is commemorated this coming Thursday. That would be the thirteenth. And uh, that's going to be a something. We have a wonderful story at the end. Jewish music throughout. This is our last week of instrumental music. We've got some Pesach stuff, some not Pesach stuff. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. An Arab terrorist stabbed two IDF soldiers in central Israel. A medic who was passing by subdued the attacker and then administered first aid to the soldiers. One is in serious condition, the other was treated and released. Israel shot down an Iranian drone that had entered Israel from Syria. A drone from Gaza was also shot down. The IDF bombed four sites in Syria, killing two. Shots were fired at a low-flying IAF cargo plane as it flew over Jenin. There was no damage. Three IDF soldiers were injured in a ramming attack south of Jerusalem. Fifteen rockets were fired from Gaza the evening before Passover. A 
The factory was damaged in Sterot. No casualties were reported, and 13 terrorists were arrested in raids in and around Bethlehem this week. In other news, a fair trade agreement will be signed later this year between Israel and Vietnam as seven years of talks wrapped up right before the Passover holiday. The countries exchanged more than $2 billion in goods. And finally, England is increasing the funding spent to protect Jewish institutions from 14 to 15 million pounds, roughly $18 million. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Michal Klein, who is an ethnomusicologist, and we're going to be talking about nigun, which is one of those. It's become a key key keyword, you know, buzzword. People are thinking, "How are you today, Michal?" Good. How are you doing? Good. Thank God. Okay. So, how does one become an ethnomusicologist? How does one become an ethnomusicologist? Yeah, I, maybe I want to be one. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> basically, I uh, I went to UCLA. Well, let's backtrack. So I went to Ithaca College uh, for music composition. Um, and then I'd say around my senior year, I really got interested in uh, Chabad Hasidic music, uh, Nagunim. And uh, what ended up happening is I just started researching and getting interested. And you know, I've always sort of had an interest in academic sort of stuff and researching and questioning and probing. And um, so then that was sort of the beginning of my interest in the Gunim. And then a few years later, you know, during that time I went to Yeshiva and whatnot and, you know, met my wife, got married. And then um, I got into UCLA for music composition, and I saw that UCLA has a really big history of ethnomusicology. You know, they're actually one of the first in the uh, in the nation. Uh, they're one of the biggest, first, I'm sure one of the biggest programs, one of the earliest programs. Like when you look at the history of ethnomusicology in America, uh, UCLA is kind of like up there with them. Uh, and so then I took some courses, and I got really interested, and I learned um, all about it, and I took what I learned and I applied it towards the research that I did on Chabad music. 
Oh, interesting, fascinating. So now, when I'm thinking ethnomusic, ethnic music, so I'm thinking Latino, African, maybe gypsy music, you know, the backwaters of Europe. Jewish music doesn't seem to to just stand out as being something that one would actually study. So what what is it like at, at UCLA in studying about Jewish ethnic music, Nicole? Sure. Well, um, you know, so ethnomusicology, all really ethnomusic, you know, musicology is the study of music in, um, in like, culture and in history. So the funny thing is, <laughs> sorry, in ethnomusicology, there's actually been kind of a conversation about, okay, so is it non-Western music? Is it, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, historically, um, Jews and Judaism has been really kind of non-Western, even though we were living in the Western world, because we were always sort of like the other in whatever post-Western culture we were in. You know what I mean? Um, and oftentimes, like, you know, way in like the late 19th century, early 20th century, especially with Yiddish film, there's this almost like exoticization or Orientalism, I guess you would say, of, um, of Jewish culture. You know, I'm thinking about old black and white films like the Dybbuk or the Golem, um, films where you had a lot of magic and Kabbalah and, you know, this kind of like, oh, what is it? We don't really know. And, you know, Shalom Aleichem, the author, really kind of contributed to that of, like, Yiddish film and Yiddish theater, you know, Fiddler on the Roof. He's, that's his, like, most famous uh, thing that he's known for. Um, but basically, um, I would say that, you know, for us as Jews, we don't really see Jewish music as being, you know, quote-unquote ethnic or ethno music, but um, for the wider audience, I mean, in America, you know, um, not many people know about Nagunim, or what they know is this, like, huge caricature of what Hasidism is and Hasidic music is, Um, but in terms of my personal experience studying Jewish music at UCLA, it's actually very good, because when I started there, um, it was the same time that uh, a professor named Mark Kligman, who is one of the foremost Jewish research music researchers in the country, um, he had just um, taken on the newly formed chair, the Mickey Katz Chair in Jewish Music, which was the first of its kind at UCLA. It was a, it's a fu- fully funded uh, chair um, position <coughs> to just spearhead Jewish music, uh, research Jewish music um, events, things like that. And since he's been there, you know, now they have, like, the Lowell Milken Fund for American Jewish Music. So UCLA, really, since I've been there, and even afterwards, is really poised to be a beacon and a hub of Jewish music in academia, at least, in terms of research and, um, um, you know, just having records of Jewish music and whatnot. That's that's fascinating. The Mickey Katz chair of, of Jewish music, I'm immediately thinking of how much is that pickle in the window and the, the gestray of the Vilda Kachka. That's, that's so great. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and it's funny because, you know, so with the Mickey Katz chair, because it was specifically the Mickey Katz chair, you know, it's interesting. So uh, Mickey Katz's son, Joel Gray, you know, the famous, mm-hmm. you know, Mickey Katz is famous. The son of Joel Gray is also famous for shows like Cabaret and whatnot. So Joel Gray had a vested interest in the program. I never met him, but I know that, for instance, uh, I was in the Klezmer Music Ensemble. I headed the Klezmer Music Ensemble for a few years, and he saw performances that we did um, on recorded video, and he thought that they were great. So 
that was pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, we did a few Mickey Cats songs um, in tribute to Mickey Cats because it was the Mickey Cats chair. You know what I mean? Okay. Just, just as an aside, do you have a favorite Mickey Cat song? I play Mickey Cat's on the station on the show all the time, but I do have a favorite, um, favorite Mickey Cat show. I mean, I think the classic, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know that much of his music, but of course the classic, you know, Dove is, Dove and Crockett. Uh-huh. I mean, that That's cool. Funny. Mine actually, his favorite is Where Are My Pants, which is a great song. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a parody of, um, I don't even remember that. It's a Disney song. Da 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 da. I don't remember what the what the original was, but it's very. very I don't funny. remember either. So, but anyway, so um, <laughs> the end. The, the the punchline is I lost my pants in Las Vegas. So that was the uh, the, the pun at, <laughs> the pun at the pun at the end of the thing. That's great. Our guest today is uh, Michael Klein. We're talking about Jewish ethnomusicology. Okay, so. The Jewish Hour came online about 26 years ago, and uh, I, at that time, had one CD. And so I reached out and went on, went online and went all over the place. Like, where am I going to get music for? I want to play music, and you can't just... The first show, I actually played three songs from one CD, because I only had one CD. The internet, YouTube's not around yet. And I reached out to Velvel Pasternak. Do you, I don't know if you know the name. Uh-huh. And of course, I know Velvo Pasternak was. Yeah, that's it. Of course, Velvo Pasternak was the like the Jewish musicologist. He knew more about Jewish music than probably anybody alive in the twentieth century. Twentieth century, absolutely. He was. Absolutely. Uh, he that's was. Not, that's not contested. Yeah, he was probably responsible for popularizing and making Jewish music what it is today. It's Velvo Pasternak. He actually, I reached out to him. I uh, called him on the phone. He said, "Yeah, okay." I'm trying to remember the name of the label that he was working with at that time in Baltimore. And uh, I called him up and I said, I need some CDs and could you help me out? He said, yeah, okay, I'll send you some some stuff I'd like you to promote. He sent me a box, without exaggeration, of over 100 CDs of various Jewish Jewish uh, titles of different genres all, all over the place. So I had him on my show and I asked him the question, what's Jewish music? And his response was, whatever Jewish Jews are making at the time. Now, let me let me qualify that answer and see what I said. We played a song. I don't know if you heard the song I just played. I just played a song that just, just came out. It's by It was by Mordecai Shapiro called Abba. And uh, the the music very sounds like he borrowed it from Stevie Wonder, like from Very Superstitious. Huh. And when we get done, I'll be playing music by Gioria Fiedman, and we'll be playing Sammy's Freilich, which is probably about 100 years old. Then there's another song at the end, well, I'm playing Ellie Beer doing a song called Elokai Ekra, which sounds like it could have been played at the uh, at a um, the was it not not Providence? What's the other city in, in Rhode Island? The the folk festival there. It's like folk music. So Jewish music seems to take on um, the the flavor of whatever is being played by the locals, and absolutely. And therefore, we have all these various different genres, like Moroccan music, you know, Joe Amar and all these people, type of people. But what's different about a niggin? A niggin's not a Jewish song. What's a niggin? So it's interesting to say a niggin is not a Jewish song, because I think that I actually, you know, if somebody were to just kind of like drop a pin in this conversation and hear that phrase, a niggin is not a Jewish song, they wouldn't get what you're saying. You know what I mean? 
But given all of the titles you just mentioned, one of Shapiro and all these others, um, I totally agree with you that a niggin is not a Jewish song, you know? A Jewish song, I would say, uh, nowadays is like, you know, the Jewish pop music. But a niggin is completely different because, you know, music like Avraham Fried and Mordechai Ben David, who I love, you know, I really love, you know, I, I love the classics and there's also some new people that I really love, like, I don't know if you ever played Miss in Black. I mean, sure. that's that's rap. But I love Miss. We I played love him last Miss week. As a matter, we played him last week. As a matter of fact, yes, he came out with. I a love Miss in Black. I think Miss in Black music is some of the best Jewish music today. Quite honestly, um, just in terms of the quality of it and the lyrical content. But what separates a niggin, I feel, is it's a certain cultural context. You know, I said this. Um, they recently put out a um, Chabad.org article. Um, where I was interviewed, and they, they, something they quoted from me that I thought was really, you know, I'm really happy they did, was that <coughs> Nagunim was by Hasidim and by, and by Rebbeim for Hasidim. So it was like by Hasidim for Hasidim, but like add on the Rebbeim, like by Hasidim and Rebbe's for Hasidim. So it was, you know, are Hasidic in their, you know, in their origin, um, and their real origin, actually, the earliest origins was taken, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the, the, the Hasidic movement. Um, she was deeply inspired by the songs of the surrounding, you know, folk shepherds, you know, the, the, the flute songs and the vocal folk songs of the shepherds, the non-Jewish shepherds, whether it was in Ukrainian shepherds or Valachian shepherds. And, you know, what's interesting is you might say, you have something, you have someone like the Baal Shem Tov, who is a tremendous tzaddik, um, what's he doing cucking in this non, you know, this music that's of non-Jewish origin, um, and now he's taking it and he's making it some of the most Jewish music you can imagine. And the answer is, is this idea that actually um, was taken from a researcher named Ellen Koskoff. She was actually, I recently did a, a, a lecture, kind of co-lecture with her, she was the first. She was the first ethnomusicologist to write a major work, a major ethnography, on the music of Lubavitcher uh, Hasidim, and it's called Music of Lubavitcher Life. And she talks about this idea called musical tikkun. You know, we know tikkun, the idea, you know, tikkun olam, or the idea of tikkun that there's, you know, you know, the physical world is this like darkness, and in the darkness of the physical world, there are these sparks of kedusha, these sparks of holiness. And it's our job through doing mitzvahs and learning Torah and, you know, engaging in the physical world uh, to pure, you know, to take those sparks and purify them and elevate the sparks. You know, so, and that's why Judaism is a very physical religion as opposed to some other religious philosophies where you might, you know, retreat into the mountains and, you know, look at your belly button for six years and breathe, you know, mountain air and do, I don't know, you know, or shun the physicality. We embrace the physicality. Um, not on a purely physical basis, but as to what it could do for us. And now, I know that you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Nagunim and music, but it's very important, because um, Nagunim were a product of musical tikkun, of taking these um, songs of shepherds. And again, let me give a big, big, big parenthesis to this that's very important, is that it was always understood that not every, you know, Yonkel, Barrel, and Schmerl could do this. Not every person could take a niggin, uh, I mean, could take a folk song and turn it into a niggin. Only a tzaddik, only somebody who had um, Ruach and Kodesh, who could perceive in that song that there was a spark. They say that that spark, actually, that was in the folk songs were sparks 
that were a Gilgul of the songs from the Bass of Macbosh. That's the thing I heard. I don't remember where I heard it. Is, I can't quote it, but it's okay, a very interesting idea. That, it is an idea. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting idea to think that people would have a connection with uh, melodies that would have been, I guess you would call them at that time liturgical because there wasn't any liturgy. It was just music in the temple, but going back more than 2,000 years. Would you, would you any clue how well, that would work? Well, well so, here's, so, yeah, so here's how I understand it because, you know, I am, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that in the times of the Beis HaMikdash they were doing, you know, you know, I don't think that they were doing that, like, you know. Like Although you never know. You never know, but... Um, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Sorry to be glad. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a really good, like, a Mel Brooks skit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, no, the way I understand it is everything is a body and a soul, you know, and so it may not necessarily be the body of the song, which is the music of the song, but there is a soul of the song that we apprehend with the musical notes and the rhythms and the instruments and whatnot, and yet that's not what the soul is, meaning you can't say, oh, the soul is in that, the eighth note, that's the soul, or, you know, that that's the soul. You, you don't say that, but the soul is what's giving it life in the sense like, you know, when you look at yourself, you look at your hand, oh, my, my hand, that's my soul. No, but your, your hand is able to move and you're able to exist because your soul is animating your body, right? So in the same way that it might not be that that folk song is, maybe it had a vague, vague, vague shadow of a resemblance to the music in the bass of Mikdash, but even if it didn't, that doesn't bother me because the way I understand it is that the soul of that folk song, the feeling and the highest in that song is the same soul or a spark, a chip off the old block from the same soul of the songs that were performed in the base of Mikdash. That's the way I understand it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Let me just interrupt. I'm going to take in a, our guest today again is uh, Michal Klein. Is it Rabbi Michal Klein, Dr. Michal Klein? What are you giving uh, me a title? Not Rabbi yet. Not Rabbi yet. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay, good. Um, doctor, so, I, yeah, I mean, I have, my, I have my PhD, but I'm not a, I'm not a rabbi yet. Hopefully okay. soon. An, er, an Erev Rav. Okay, fine, good. But, um, <laughs> Erev Rav. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna take an I'm gonna take an example. Okay, we opened up with the song Nyet Nyet Yekova, which was done in a modern way. It has modern orchestration, and it was sung by a French uh, singer who did make, worked on the arrangement. The song Nyet Nyet Yekova was da 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 was um, the words mean uh, God is one, His name is one. Besides Him, there is none. As you translate it into English and, and make it rhymes. To my understanding. That was a Russian bar song. Yep. And, and to take it even further than that, if you want to take it back further than that, about 15 years ago or so, there was a person on YouTube who did something called the Pachelbel rant. And he showed that Pachelbel's inflation, you know, da, 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 bum, bum, that, that chord progression appears throughout the uh, popular music going all he gives he plays examples of uh, the Beatles and Aerosmith and uh, other people like this. So my daughter, who was learning piano at the time, using learning music theory, so she started playing around with that chord progression and she put it into D minor, and what she got was da 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 bum 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 bum. Okay, so now let's talk about the turning all of that into a nigun. How would, how does such a thing like that happen, Michal? Meaning how is, 
How do we get from Pachelbel to Russian drinking song to besides God, there is none? Okay, well, you know, the connection between um, Pachelbel's canon and the Russian drinking song, um, I honestly, I can't say that, I mean, I'm sure that one could do a thorough study on it and say, yes, that is, you know, that is what it is, you know, that it is from Pachelbel's canon, but, you know, honestly, we, we don't know, and it sounds very similar. It could be maybe some guy somewhere happened to have heard Pachelbel's canon, and he's like, no, Igor, I heard this song, and it's great, let's sing it at the Russian bar, and then some Lubavitcher was like, oh, wow, that's great, let's use the word name Yenikovel. Could be, I don't know, but basically, in terms of how the Russian drinking song was taken and turned into a niggin, again, it goes back to this idea of musical tikkun, because this idea is, you know, um, I don't know if it's from the Zohar or from the, I can, honestly, I, don't, I, I know these like sayings, but I can't exactly quote where they're from, but you probably said before that the higher something is, the lower it falls, mm-hmm. you know, like the highest brick on the wall will fall the farthest away from the wall. And, you know, I mean, that's a very profound statement. You could use that for a lot of things, like especially, you know, people that are seemingly having difficulties and troubles in their Yiddishkeit, um, that those people are actually the loftiest souls of our generation because, you know, otherwise why would they be falling away so far? Or like, for instance, Acher, you know, Alicia ben like he was this amazing Talmud Chacham, and yet we hear, like, when he became not religious, he did so, you know, with such a, with such a zest and with such a fire that um, it was really, really crazy. So... You know, the fact that you take a Russian drinking song, the normal sensibilities would say, oh, my gosh, you have this thing that's being used for the crudest thing, Russian drinking songs, or, you know, military marches, and what's, what's such, you know, such a random assortment of songs, and yet they're being used to express the most intimate and beautiful and holy aspects of Hasidic life, right? Mm-hmm. But again, it's this idea that the spark is there. And the tzaddik, or, you know, a chassid who perceives it, and then the chassid brings it to the tzaddik, and the tzaddik okays it and says, yes, you know, that is, that's appropriate. Again, it also has the tzaddik's stamp of approval. Um, I mean, I can almost guarantee you that all of the newer nagunim that were brought during the Rebbe's time, you know, Rebbe Nachman Schneerson during his time, um, were none of them became part of the canon without the Rebbe's stamp of approval. And even some of these Nagunim today, like I happen to know somebody who is a wonderful Hasid and he's a great Balmanagan, and he wrote a new Nigan a few years ago in honor of the Rebbe's birthday. You know, in Chabad, we always take like a, a Pusik from the Rebbe's capital and we put a melody, we put a, either we put an existing Nigan to it or we write a new Nigan. But, you know, what's interesting is that none of these Nagunim, maybe it's because they're new and there hasn't been enough time, and maybe 50 years from now they'll be singing it, but none of them have really stuck as being part of the canon as the Nagunim of old times do, because the Rebbe is not physically here to put his stamp of approval on it. You know what I mean? Um, so the fact that this Russian drinking song, that I think it was during the middle of his time that it was taken on, um, that doesn't surprise me. You know, what's interesting is, so the, um, the Rebbe, would only, um, 
so there, there's two there's two big um, two songs of non-Jewish origin. La Marseille, which was the French national anthem that the Rebbe brought in, you know, ba da 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 dun dun da dun 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 dun, and then Napoleon's march that the author Rebbe Rebbe Shneur Zalman he brought in. What was interesting is uh, La Marseille, the Rebbe would use it for the um, for the the tefillah and davening of Haderes v'Hamuna. Haderes v'Hamuna lechai hayla mina mina bebracha lechai hayla min. What's interesting is I once heard that he would really only encourage it during um, the davening of Yom Merayim of like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is interesting because you know they're the holiest days of the year, and we're using that melody dafka for that tefillah during that time of the year. And I think the reason why is because since it came not from the mind of a chassid, not from the mind of a rabbi, but it came from an outside source, there was a spark there. And since the rabbi, he took it and he, I guess, converted it, if you want to say that, or he did a musical tikkun, then that could be, um, that's now part of the canon and it's used on one of the holiest days of the year. So to me, it, again, it's not really a contradiction in terms of how could it be a Russian drinking song, all these things. It makes sense to me because this idea of musical tikkun, this idea of the spark that's in there that, you know, the Sadik brings out. And, um, yeah. Okay, cool. We are, unfortunately, I have a zillion more questions. We're going to have to reserve a time to get you back on again, because, but I am, we are out of time for this segment. We want to thank our guest again. It was Michael Klein, an ethnomusicologist specializing in nigund, the Jewish soulful melodies of the Lubavitcher Hasidim. And uh, do you have explanations for all 200 and something uh, Nigunim, have you able to track down the origins? And... Uh, definitely not. Yeah, no, I don't have. A, I would, I'm, I'm waiting for that because there's a lot of Nigunim. Just you know, some of them they are in, they're in the book called Safer Nigunim, the book about these melodies. Yeah. And the previous Rebbe did. And you wouldn't be able to tackle it in one radio session. <laughs> yeah, no, that's we're talking. You could do a whole podcast on that one. So, in series of podcasts, maybe you'll start a podcast. Everybody's doing podcasts. Hello. Okay, I want to thank you so much, Michael, and uh, wish you uh, all the best. I mean, thank you so much. Have a great job. You too. Take care. We're going to take a, a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Shulpinman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Speaking of Nigun, let's get some music going. They really do. This is, uh, f- this is, this is the, marks the culmination of the Passover Haggadah. The song is Lashana Habab Yerushalayim. Next year we should be in Jerusalem. Wish we didn't make it ne- this year, so this next year. This is the Kfar Yaladim Choir. Next year in Jerusalem. Le shana haba, bi Yerushalayim, 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 le shana
New Year approaching, why go anywhere else for your holiday shopping when you can go to the Grove? Fully renovated, the Grove is located on Greenfield Road, just south of 696. At the Grove, you'll find the largest selection of kosher foods and wines in Michigan. Looking for fresh, round holiday challahs, honey cake, or exotic fruit for the new year? The Grove has it. The Grove has the freshest produce, gourmet dairy, deli, and meats. They even have a kosher bakery and hot takeout right on the premises. It's The Grove on Greenfield Road in 696 for all your shopping needs. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Just to tag that commercial, the Grove is also you know, supplies all your needs for Passover. They will be closed on Wednesday and Thursday this week. But if you need anything for Passover, they've still got matzah sitting there if you ran out. And I could see doing that. We've got some heavy crumb crutchers at the Finman family. So running out of matzah, not unheard of. They comes Friday. Guess what? It's Passover again. They're going to have challah and all that stuff that you're going to need for your regular everyday Shabbos. But whatever Shabbos is regular, but every Shabbos is special. Up next, speaking of special, this is Yishai Reboy. This song is just less than a week old. It's a parody of the four questions, but it's not a funny parody. It's like it's it's really amazing. It's a serious parody. It's based on the four questions that are asked by the youngest person at the Seder to start the Seder. But this one is sort of like, instead of why is this night different than all other nights, is why is this people, meaning the Jewish people, different than all other people? The song is called Ani Shayach La'am. This is for the people.
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This Wednesday night commemorates the 3,335th anniversary of the splitting of the sea. The Jews crossed to escape from Egypt. So, yes, the old joke, why did the Jews cross the sea? The answer is not to get to the other side, because they came up on the same side. Most people aren't aware of that, that they was a big U, and they wound up downstream or whatever it was. And it wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. It was a salt marsh somewhere along what is now the Suez Canal. So we can't even go find the thing because it doesn't even exist anymore. So why did the Jews cross the Red Sea? Well, the answer that is given in the, in the beginning of the portion is that God took the Jewish people along the circuitous road. It didn't take them across the, the quick way because before the advent of the Suez Canal, you could walk from Egypt to Israel. It was an 11-day walk, and you would walk right along the Mediterranean. And it was probably a pretty pleasant walk, you know, walking along the seashore over there. It wasn't desert. It's not going through the Sinai. I mean, it technically is the Sinai, but you're walking along the Mediterranean. So it was it was probably would be, and you're talking in like April, beautiful weather. Didn't do it because the Almighty knew his customers. As soon as there'd be any adversity, Jews would just run right back. If it was so quick to get out, they're going to run back. So like this, they were thinking, since they didn't know where they were going anyway, that if they have to get back, they have to cross the sea, and that God's not going to cross, split the sea for them again. They're not going back so fast. That worked. That's a simple reason. We have a deeper reason. The deeper reason is, is that the splitting of the sea can be used to describe how the Almighty made the creation. This is a fascinating thing. It says that Moses stood at the edge of the sea and he raised his staff and the east wind began to blow and it blew the whole night. And as soon as the staff was uh, descended and the Moses got to the other side, I think he was the last one to go across, the uh, sea went back to its normal thing. Wind stopped blowing, that's it, done. So in other words, it was needed for the sea to split and to change its nature from flowing to standing up in a polarized fashion, it needed a constant energy. So we use this as a parallel for the creation of the world, because before the world was here, there was nothing. And the Almighty instills a constant energy, a constant flow of godliness 
to this nothing, to keep the nature of nothing, that now the world looks like something. So now that I know this, so what? Well, if I understand that the creation is a constant ongoing thing. Why, if it's quite the way, if it's constant, why don't I see it constantly being created? Because it's happening at one, at, at every four times 10 to the minus 23rd seconds. And we can see fast as maybe a third of a second. So this is like a whole lot quicker. So it's like happening so fast that we just perceive it as a single continuum, which is why you had that battle between Einstein and Newton, even though they live 500 years apart from each other, where Newton said that time is a continuum, whereas Einstein said, no, time is just a point in space. And uh, one is perceivable and one is the probably uh, objection, objective. So the world is being created right now the way it's supposed to be created. And what does that mean? That what's happening right now is what's supposed to be happening right now. And we believe, we do believe in divine providence. Whatever just happened was supposed to happen. Understanding that we're not stronger than God. Can something happen that God would not want us to do? No, that's impossible. We do have free choice. And we can make the right choice. And the right choice is based on our perception of good and evil. Uh, For Jews and for mankind. That's the the Torah, the will and wisdom of God, which comes down as the various commandments, 613 for Jews, 7 for non-Jews. When we have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, it says, there's a uh, rabbinic pun. Here's a knee slapper for you. Uh, The word matzois and mitzvahs are spelled the same. It's just one, the third letter is a V, the other one, the third letter is an O. So the matzois, uh, it says, don't let your, your matzois become chametz, is what the verse says. And the rabbis say, here's the part, don't let your mitzvois become chametz. Chametz means to leave it over. If you have an opportunity to do something good, do it right away, because this is what the, the Almighty is creating the world right now with an opportunity to give you, some, to, to give you an opportunity to do something good. You shouldn't say, yeah, I'll get around to it. No, 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 no. This is, this is the major lesson that we learn from the splitting of the sea. That the Almighty is actively and intimately involved in our lives. And the, the Almighty, you might say, he's the, the trailblazer. He's the guy with the machete that's hacking away the forest in front of us. So that we get to, to walk on a paved road as they did coming out of Egypt. That they didn't walk through mud. They walked on paved roads with all of their needs provided. And that's what's the Almighty doing. That's what what we get to see now. Speaking of now, so we're into April, and the Jewish hour is currently in its 29th year. So we would like you to go to RabbiFinman.com. You can contact me. You can look at all the other things at RabbiFinman.com. And I was so hoping we got such a such a push before Passover that the uh, the that the month of March got paid off, and we don't have to worry about anything. But now it's April, and we've got a new month coming up. 
So we have the donations page, which we can use for making pledges to the Jewish hour. Make it a monthly thing. Make it a make it a one-time thing. Make it small. Make it big. Doesn't matter. It's all good. It all goes into the pot. And we get to bring you a podcast worth listening to. So we've been doing it for 29 years, and you've been listening all this uh, this whole hour till now. So go to rabbifinman.com, make that uh, make that donation, make that make that gift. It's just after Passover, so okay, good. It's a good time. Anytime's a good time, but during Passover, after Passover, very good time. The story. That's uh, rabbifinman.com before we get to the story. And if you don't like to do that, we know the routine. Drop your donation and any amount of to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48227. The story involves the B'nai Yisachar, who was a prominent rabbi in the mid-1800s. When he was a kid, his father hired himself out as a itinerant school teacher, which meant that he traveled away from his family, leaving right after the Sukkot holiday in the fall and returning right before the Passover holiday in the spring. So he did not see his family for six months. And then after Passover, he would go do the same thing. So the um, he's hired himself out to an innkeeper. Jews who travel by foot or by carriage from point A to point B, and you couldn't really get very far in a day. So there were these inns. There were inns that were little hotels, truck stops, that were run by Jews for Jews and non-Jews for non-Jews. So there was a Jewish innkeeper who had kids, and he's located in the middle of no place, and he needed to have an education for his kids. So the B'nai Yisachar's father taught these kids. And as the B'nai Yisachar's father described it, they had heads like bricks. Not exactly, He thought he was wasting his time with these kids. But anyway, so there was a tremendous blizzard in the middle of the winter. And they hear a pounding at the door. It's three peasants. Please let us in. We're going, it's, it's, it's whiteout conditions. Frigid. So the uh, innkeeper says, you got any money? He says, no. So he says, goodbye, I'm, I'm running a business. I'm not, this is not a charity house. He's about to close the door, and the, and the uh, B'nai Sacher's father said, you can't, you can't just, they'll die. You can't do that. And the innkeeper said to the B'nai Sacher's father, will you pay for them? And he said, yeah, the bill is on me. So it, it snowed, and it snowed for four days, but that's not all. It took two weeks for the snow to clear. And in the meantime, these peasants, they're living it up. And they thanked their gracious host for paying their bill and left. God forgotten about now comes before Passover, and the innkeeper wants to settle up. He says, I owe you 40 rubles for your teaching my kids. You owe me 43 rubles for taking care of those peasants. When you come back after Passover, I trust you will bring me the three rubles. Have a nice Passover. So now the Benyasachar's father is shocked. This is six months' worth of money. He is, how is he going to, this is how he's supposed to pay his bills for like the next six months. 
and he's just like in a fuddle. But he he, he said, I got to go home. And he walked home. And when he came to town, it suddenly hit him. What do I have to run home for? I got nothing to give my wife. It's like, so he went into the, the first synagogue and he sat down. And he took out a book and he started to learn. So in the meantime, 10-year-old Bnei Yisachar, his, uh somehow got word his father's in town. So he asked permission from his ra- from his teacher. Can I go see my father? I haven't seen him in six months. He said, yeah. So he runs home. And he says, Tati, 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 you know, Daddy, Daddy. And he says, Mother says, he hasn't come home yet. He says, maybe he's still on the road. So he's running towards the edge of town. He says, you've seen my father? Have you seen my father? Somebody says, I saw him go into uh, that that synagogue over there. So he runs and he sees his father. He throws his arms on him. He's so happy. He says, Tati, come home, come home. I want to show you all the things. Mommy has all the food that we need for Passover and I have new shoes and new clothes. And his father's thinking, oh gosh, I have to pay all these people. But he says, no, I got to face the music. The, uh, the alleys of this town, which is where the streets were more like alleys, I forget the name of the city where the Bnei Yisachar grew up. It might have been Apta. It was one of these little shtetlach, little, very little streets. And if a carriage were to come through, you would have to like duck into like a doorway. Otherwise, you'd get crushed. And the uh, people had ca- the people who had these carriages were, really weren't too keen on stopping for pedestrians. They would just keep going. So they're walking through the alley, and they hear a carriage coming. They ducked into the door, and as the carriage passed by where they were standing, it hit a pothole. They don't have potholes just in Michigan. And off the back of the carriage fell a box. And the Bnei Yisachar's father ran after the carriage. Hey, hey, wait, your box. Hello, hello. The carriage turned the corner, but when he got up to the corner, the carriage was gone. He said, what am I doing now? He says, nope. So he took open the box, and what was in the box... 43 rubles. So imagine that. It's a little talking about divine providence. Now, we have a tradition at the towards the end of the Seder that we open up the door to show that we understand that God is protecting us and we're not afraid to open the door. It's called opening the door for Elijah because Elijah once commented to God that Jews aren't doing the Seders. So God said, oh yeah, you have to go to every Seder. He says, what if they don't open it? So we have this thing. We open the door. We welcome Elijah. We pour him a cup of wine. We wind up pouring it back because he doesn't drink it. And there's a, 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 a tradition that whenever you open the door for Elijah, if there's anybody there, it is Elijah. I've been doing, I've been, I personally have been opening the door for 47 years and I've never seen anybody when I open the door might be because it's like 2 o'clock in the morning by the time I get to opening the door. But So now, see, the Bnei Yisachar, 10-year-old, was given the uh, the job of opening the door. So when he opened the door, he said, Ta, Dad, the coachman is here. There was nobody there, but he saw. The father pulled him aside and said, You're not allowed to tell anybody this story until you're in your deathbed. Promise. And he promised him. So I heard this story from Rabbi Shalom Bear Gordon, who heard this story when he was a kid in Poland from a student of the Bnei Yisachar who heard it from the Bnei Yisachar on his deathbed. That's going to do it. We wish you a happy, healthy, uh, well, we're done with Pesach. That part is over. Continued happy, healthy Pesach and kosher and all that stuff. 
And we hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. Take care. Bye. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.